Hi, this is Josh Barrow. Hi, it's Ken White, and this is Serious Trouble. We have a brief episode for you today, a special episode. We want to catch you up on a few developments uh, since our episode about the January 6th committee hearings. Now, if you didn't get our most recent episode about the January 6th committee hearings, uh, which came out on, on Monday, June 27th, that's because you're not a paying subscriber to Serious Trouble. And again, you know, that's your right. It's a free country, and uh, we have a little free episode here for you today. Um, but if you want to hear all about the uh, the Jeffrey Clark testimony um, and certain other developments, uh, Ken's assessment about the increase likelihood that there could actually be criminal charges for Donald Trump, I encourage you to go to SeriousTrouble.show. You can become a paying subscriber there, and then you'll get our 40-plus minute episode uh, that was released on Monday. But uh, even if you don't do that, we have a little bit uh, to talk with you about some breaking news developments uh, that have happened uh, this week, including in uh, committee testimony on Tuesday the 28th. Yeah, exactly, Josh. And I think you can summarize uh, those developments in the hearing today by saying, holy shit. <laughs> Holy shit. So I guess the most holy shit moment, and, and the, the key witness in the hearing this Tuesday is Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, who was an aide to Mark Meadows, who was the White House chief of staff in the waning days of the Trump administration. And she has some testimony about statements uh, made by Donald Trump and people around Donald Trump and actions that they took uh, leading up to the January 6th riot. And I guess the, the most remarkable piece of testimony here from Hutchinson is about the morning of January 6th, uh, when then-President Trump spoke to a rally at the Ellipse in front of the White House uh, in the, the morning of January 6th, uh, the, the assembled crowd, which he whooped up and then basically talked about, you know, we hope Mike Pence is going to do the right thing, and I'm going to go with you to the Capitol, and I want you to fight like hell. Before he went out to make that speech, he was upset, as he sometimes gets, about the size of the crowd uh, that was there to see him on the ellipse. The ellipse was not full. And part of his assessment of why the ellipse wasn't full was that you had to pass through a magnetometer to get onto the ellipse because you were getting in proximity to the president of the United States. And some people didn't want to pass the metal detectors, presumably because they were in possession of firearms. And so Cassidy Hutchinson says she overheard then-President Trump say something to the effect of, Get rid of the mags. Get rid of the magnetometers. They're not here to hurt me. Uh, the president wanted the crowd there, even if they had weapons, to get in closer to see him so they'd be seen on TV. And this is the, the crowd of people that he was preparing to dispatch down to the Capitol. Uh, and then, as we, you know, we've heard from other testimony that he suggested later that day that, you know, maybe the crowd had the right idea when they said they wanted to hang Mike Pence. So this is... It, I've been surprised at various stages through these hearings that I've been surprised by things that we've learned because I thought that we knew so much of what we knew. And we knew about President Trump's depraved indifference to what happened to Mike Pence or anybody else who stood in his way for a second term. But this, you know, what really strikes me about this, and you were saying on Twitter, Ken, it's really hard to prove that somebody illegally sought to incite violence. There's a, a Supreme Court standard that you'll go through. But this this statement suggesting the president's knowledge and acceptance of the fact that the crowd that he was dispatching to the Capitol was armed with firearms seems like an important thing if you're trying to establish that he was actually inciting this crowd to riot. Yeah, uh, this is like law school exam hypothetical territory here in terms of being bizarre and unlikely. Like you said, he, he's quoted as saying something to the effect of they're not here to hurt me. Although the Republican defense right now is saying, well, maybe the emphasis was different. He was saying they're not here to hurt me as opposed to not here to hurt me. So they had that going for them, which is nice. Right. He also apparently said, I don't care if they have fucking weapons. But so the Brandenburg test you refer to, you know, we've been, we've been saying for years that the trouble with holding Trump accountable on an incitement standard for getting that crowd to go to the Capitol and commit violence is that the test is really tough. 
to be outside First Amendment protection under Brandenburg, you have to show that it was intended and likely to cause imminent lawless action. And it's always been a big lift to show that he intended his words, particularly because he's so intemperate all the time, to cause immediate lawless action. But when you've got him quoted knowing these people have weapons and even saying something like they're not here to hurt me, prosecutors uh, live and die over evidence like that. That is dream evidence to try to show his mental state. And in my opinion, and the opinion of another a number of other commentators who know the First Amendment, that takes it from a very heavy lift to very plausible that they could go after him on an incitement standard if if they're confident they can prove he actually said that. So one of the reasons that I think there's a reluctance to charge around this, and frankly, that I have been reluctant to want a criminal charge for Trump on incitement, is that, you know, giving speeches like this in the context of a political dispute is sort of classic protected First Amendment behavior. And you sometimes people give speeches with rhetoric that is intemperate, that contains metaphors that pertain to images of violence. And that that's not just protected. That's something that's like that. That's sort of one of the key things that the First Amendment is designed to protect. And we don't generally want the Justice Department sort of picking over the statements of politicians and saying, well, this, you know, this thing you said, this thing was metaphorical, but this thing went too far. And I understand, you know, that this is we've been put in a very difficult situation here. And I understand what the reason would be to say that this is different. But I still think that's, you know, that's a really hard thing to get in the business of doing. And I especially wonder, you know, we've talked about there's a theory that the committee has been advancing for weeks at this point that you could charge the president for uh, obstructing an an official proceeding for his effort to get Mike Pence not to count the electoral votes. Um, You could charge him for fraud on the United States for that act also. What would be the advantage of charging incitement here and inviting this particular set of First Amendment concerns that you would not necessarily invite with that obstructing an official proceeding charge? Well, that's a great question, Josh. And I think it kind of goes to the difference between what people want to see versus what prosecutors are likely to do. So people want to see the cinematic, the exciting, the emotionally resident and type of things. And that's why they always say we want him, uh, they want him to go after him for Rico, because that's the way that people (laughs) express that. But you're right that the obstruction uh, of Congress uh, idea is a cleaner one with fewer First Amendment implications. You're also right that political speech is absolutely the heartland of the First Amendment. And they're going to be naturally very reluctant to go after that. But that said, this string of facts we've been learning about today with the things he said and then the other things we've learned about, about he, you know, afterwards said he didn't think the people had done anything wrong. He didn't want to ask them to leave. He didn't want to say anything about how they should be prosecuted. All that together, if there was any way to make a case for a political speech crossing into incitement, that is the type of evidence you'd want. That is the extraordinary evidence meeting the extraordinary need in the case of going after a political speech for incitement. The line that we've been hearing from Republicans in the House representatives, from the the minority on the House Judiciary Committee, where the ranking member is Jim Jordan, who's a very hot-headed, very pro-Trump congressman from Ohio, they've been saying, this is all hearsay. And so I, I want you to talk about 
what evidence that we've heard is here. So now, obviously, this is a committee hearing. They're not subject to the rules of evidence that you would be in a criminal trial about what's hearsay. And some of the statements that we're talking about here, even if they're hearsay in the way that they've been presented to us, maybe there would be different people you could call in the context of a criminal trial where you'd be able to get them into evidence that they wouldn't be hearsay. But it's sort of two major statements here. One is Cassidy Hutchison says that she heard the then president say something to the effect of get rid of the mags and talking about how he didn't care that the people had firearms. The other was her hearing the White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations describe an incident that he said had happened in the presidential limousine involving the lead Secret Service agent for the president, and that the Deputy Chief of Staff uh, relayed this story in the presence of that Secret Service agent, that, that he said that on January 6th, the president had wanted to go down to the Capitol uh, to join the the his supporters who were marching there, um, and that he's told while he's in the presidential limousine that this is not going to be possible. And so then the president tries to grab for the steering wheel uh, of this limousine called the Beast to try to, to insist that he should go down to the Capitol. Uh, and that this uh, Secret Service agent uh, grabs the president and says, sir, you, you can't do that. We can't go down there. We have to go back to the White House. And that the president then lunged uh, for this Secret Service agent's throat. And so what you have there is you have two things. One is you have Cassidy Hutchinson describing something that she heard the president say. The other is Cassidy Hutchinson describing some other people recounting a story about what the president had allegedly done. Is either of those things hearsay? Uh Yes, potentially. You're right that the rules of evidence and therefore the hearsay rule don't apply to proceedings in this hearing. But if you wanted to prove that these things happened in criminal court, then uh, those rules would apply. Cassidy Hutchinson testifying to what she heard Trump say is not hearsay. It's it's explicitly non-hearsay under what's called the statement of a party opponent, basically meaning when you're suing someone or prosecuting them, then their statements are definitionally not hearsay. Her saying what she heard a Secret Service agent describe happening or describe other people uh, doing, that is hearsay, unless you're suing the Secret Service agent, okay? But on the other hand, theoretically, in any criminal prosecution, they would get that Secret Service agent or other witnesses and bring them in live to describe what happened. I also, I, I use this phrase uh, specifically. I said that Cassidy Hutchison testified that she heard then-President Trump say something to the effect of get rid of the mags. She, in her testimony, her testimony was quite compelling, but she says over and over again this phrase, something to the effect of, something to the effect of, which is to say that what she's describing being said, it's not a verbatim quote. She doesn't know precisely what was said. She's saying that they said something to the effect of this. In the context of a criminal trial, is that important? Because, you know, presumably you could say, well, she doesn't know exactly what he said. Maybe he said something slightly different in a way that is important for establishing his intent or for establishing the elements uh, of incitement or any other crime that you're looking to prosecute. Yes, it, uh, Josh, it actually is very important. That's exactly the sort of thing a defense attorney would cross-examine her over and say, you know, so you don't know, you don't remember exactly what he said. He could have said this, he could have said that. And this is why a hearing like this is a double-edged sword and that it gets the facts out into the open for the public, but it also is detrimental to her value as a direct witness to the events because now there's a record of her saying, you know, she's only knows words to the effect of. So presumably there are other witnesses there. Maybe they have a firmer memory. But absolutely, that's the type of qualification of what you remember that would be very useful to the defense. 
Also, at the at the end of the hearing or toward the end of the hearing on Tuesday, we had certain suggestions from the committee that certain witnesses had been receiving messages from people close to Donald Trump to the effect of the former president is watching what's being said here. He reads the transcripts. You want to stay in the good graces of Trump world. Sort of weird to present this as as disembodied anonymous statements rather than bringing individuals up to say, you know, this specific person who's associated with Donald Trump made this specific statement to me. It seems like they're they're sniffing around an accusation of witness tampering, but it feels like if you want to make that accusation, wouldn't you need to make it with with greater specifics? It's a little it's a little weird to me to sort of hint at that. Uh, it is a little vague, both in terms of who said it and who they s- said it to. Uh, they may be wetting our appetite for a future hearing. Uh, they may be deliberately keeping it vague so as not to burn the witnesses yet, uh, and maybe even out of a sense that there there could be. A, part of the grand jury investigation could be into witness tampering, and they may not want to interfere with that. So those are all reasons. But the, the statements that were claimed, that were described, uh, sort of disembodied as they are, are absolutely prosecutable as obstruction of justice and witness tampering. Uh, you would just have to prove that the person saying those things had a corrupt intent to influence these people's testimony in a proceeding. And I think that's very doable. But when you when you say the person making these statements, that person is not former President Trump. It is not. And so presumably, if you wanted to tie him to witness tampering, you would need some evidence that might be quite difficult to obtain that, you, that the person who, who made those statements was, in fact, making them at the instruction of former President Trump, right? Right. What you'd probably be looking to do is to uh, do a conspiracy for witness tampering and obstruction of justice to have them participating in it by actually making the threats and seek to prove that he entered that agreement. Uh, remember, all you need to, for criminal conspiracy is that there's a an agreement to commit a federal crime and you join the agreement intending to move it forward. So if, if they could get him saying, yeah, I want people to do this or something like that, then he's on the hook for conspiracy. That sounds like a tall order, though. Oh, it is. But uh, yeah. wouldn't you have said before today that testimony of him saying, you know, I don't care if they have weapons, let them in would be a tall order? Yes, that that's true. Um, before this hearing, we had other news uh, that, you know, we talked in the the episode that came out on Monday just for, for paying subscribers about the raid on Jeffrey Clark's home. Now we know that John Eastman also faced a raid and the seizure of his electronic devices. And John Eastman also went on Fox News to complain about that uh, very promptly. So is, first of all, is it is it a good idea if federal agents have raided your house to go on national television and complain about the raid? Uh, it is not. Uh, it is particularly a bad <laughs> idea to go on Tucker Carlson and complain about them taking your phone because Tucker Carlson will be prone to say things like he did, like everyone should just delete all their emails all the time if they didn't vote for <laughs> Joe Biden. And then you agree with that. And then that's consciousness of guilt uh, that they're going to play for the jury someday. So, yeah, Josh, <laughs> the, the bottom line is we already knew that. The phone was seized. Items were seized from Clark. We found out that John Eastman was also, uh, his person was searched, his phone taken away. And it appears that they're doing it a two-step process where they first got the warrant to seize the phone. And then they'll do the separate, far more complicated warrant dictating what they can or can't look at in the phone and the process for searching an attorney's phone and all the complexities of the DOJ regulations on that. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, one of John Eastman's key complaints is, you know, I'm an attorney and I have privileged communications with clients. I mean, and, uh, Donald Trump, I suppose, was his client 
uh, through this process. I don't know if there was a retainer agreement or anything, but he was certainly, you know, acting as an attorney on behalf of Donald Trump in this process of trying to steal the election. And so I guess that the way it works is, you know, they, they take the phones, they don't look at what's on the phones, and then they sort of work out later what they're actually going to be allowed to look at on the phones. Are we going to have another taint team here? Uh, yes, uh, it's likely we will have a taint team, and it's likely Love they a taint will, team. Yes, uh, or team taint, as they sometimes call themselves, uh, <laughs> because there are some fairly involved regulations about how you uh, can examine an attorney's phone. You know, you, they're not supposed to get attorney-client communications uh, from Clark or Eastman. You don't want to wrongfully seize. Eastman advising someone that Biden isn't legitimate president because he might have a relative who's an Italian or, you know, whatever his <laughs> theory of the day is. And uh, so it, that's much more complicated. But they were, you know, having to move. So they first got it just to seize it. To remind people, the taint team is that, you know, you have the clean team, which is the main prosecuting team that's not supposed to look at any privileged material. So you bring in other federal attorneys or other federal agents uh, who can look through the material, look at the privileged material, and they won't be involved in the prosecution. So the fact that they are tainted by having looked at certain material they're not supposed to see, it doesn't matter. The clean team stays clean. So that's, that's why it's called the taint team, not for any other reason that you might think of. Yeah. Yes, more, more mature uh, podcasters <laughs> might refer to it as the clean team or dirty team or the privileged right. team and, and prosecution team. Yes. Josh, did I ever tell you I was on a taint team? No, really. What was your taint team experience like? Uh, well, I, I, I was actually pretty important on this team. You might even say I was, <laughs> I was the top taint guy on this wow. taint team, but it's wow. a very long time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a real uh, taint accomplishment yes. there, Ken. Um, and so... Uh, Wait, sorry. How do how do you, Sarah? How do you want to do the turn to this tease here for the for the Clark stuff? No, <laughs> no way. You're on your own. <laughs> so I, I mean, the this is you know the, these are some late breaking updates here. But I mean, I think you know people. If you haven't listened to the episode that came out on Monday, the the premium episode, that's really where we have this turn. I think in the way that Ken is thinking about the uh, Department of Justice investigation into matters around January 6th and the efforts to steal the election and how close those investigations get to Donald Trump. Because we know, obviously, that there are hundreds of prosecutions being brought uh, against people uh, who participated in the riot in the Capitol building. It didn't look clear until a few days ago that the Department of Justice was getting actually close to Donald Trump and to actions, you know, more directly related to him. But now that we had this search of Jeffrey Clark's home, now we know also about this search of, of certain devices belonging to John Eastman. Um, we also talked in the in the episode on Monday about grand jury subpoenas being issued to certain people uh, who held themselves out as electors for Trump from states that actually voted for Biden, such as Kelly Ward, the chairwoman of the Arizona Republican Party. Um, it's really legal activity that's getting a lot closer to Donald Trump. And so, you know, between this episode and that episode, I think it really gets you caught up to the state of play uh, on the criminal investigation related to January 6th and how it might be a lot more directly related to Donald Trump personally than we probably thought about a month ago. So if you want to go listen to that, go to seriousTrouble.show. You can sign up there for $6 a month or $60 a year. Or if you're an existing subscriber to my other newsletter, Very Serious, you can get it for just $30 a year. You'll get access to that episode and every episode, 40 plus a year that we put out. A lot of you know that we used to make a podcast and public radio show before this. So you've heard requests for support like this before, uh, back when it was, you know, a public radio pledge drive. What's different now is this, we're making episodes just for you. So there's less distance between us and you, our audience. And that extends to your support. It's just us in the club here. So join our club. Go to SeriousTrouble.show and sign up. You'll be able to listen to that episode, which includes moments like this. Well, first of all, Josh, you know that overly technical is never annoying to me. <laughs> uh, that's my vibe. 
and like this. That, that really, I think, honestly may have made my 2022. Yeah, go get your shine box, right? That's almost as harsh as the time that Michael Avenatti said that he lived rent-free in your head, and you said, well, it would have to be rent-free, wouldn't it? I, I think it's even better than that, to be honest, Josh. <laughs> okay, that's enough serious trouble for today. Thank you for recording this with me, Ken. Thank you, Josh, here at the end of all things. Our website where you can find everything we've mentioned today is serioustrouble.show. So go there, sign up, and let's keep talking. We're going to have more episodes for you very soon. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's Josh Barrow and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble, and there's more headed your way soon.